Lately, we're picking up in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 16, which has to deal with the ninth commandment. Who knows what the ninth commandment is? Lie? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You shall not bear false witness. So I've titled today's lesson and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Yeah, and only the truth. That's right. <laughs> so help me God. And the exposition on the ninth commandment runs from 24.16 to 25.3 in our Bibles. The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. How to, what does this have to do with loving God and loving neighbor? So I'm going to start with loving God. How do, you, how do you love God by not bearing false witness? Yeah, he's, he's a God of truth. We're image bearers of God, so we, we image him and his truthfulness by always telling the truth, never telling a lie. How do we love our neighbor by not bearing false witness? Which maybe we should uh, define false witness here. Uh, if you just exaggerate a friend's story, is that bearing false witness. And in this case, what it's talking, it's in a, it's a, a legal context. You know, you're bearing testimony before a judge saying don't bear false witness there. Certainly it has implications for uh, exaggerating a friend's story, the various shades of lies that we might discuss, but it's specific here to not bearing false witness within a legal setting. So how do you how do you love your neighbor then by not bearing false witness? What does your neighbor have a right to? We have talked about how the the Ten Commandments are a bill of rights for your neighbor. So what does your neighbor have the right to if you're to not bear false witness against them? Yeah, he has the right to truth for, for, he has the right to an honest testimony about him. And as we've seen throughout all of this, the, the law isn't merely a set of inflexible rules that people are to follow, but it's a worldview teacher. You know, it's instructing truths about God, like we just discussed. God is a God of truth. You image him by telling the truth. It's also teaching you about how you relate to you know, other people, your neighbor, and that you're to bear honest testimony about them. Andrew. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, in a court of law, you could bear false testimony against somebody that could end in their execution or some other punishment that's actually not just because it's what was said about them wasn't true. So in love for your neighbor, you speak the truth. And you know that's part of this worldview that's being given to you and loving your neighbor to think through these sort of things. It's teaching you not only about your creator, but also how to live in his creation as he's ordered things. And God is one who does not distort justice. You're learning about the nature of justice here and that it's tied to truth. It's tied to the character of God. So this section is very much focused on how do you stand up for justice Well, you stand up for justice by not bearing false witness, but it also has a bunch of positive implications on things that you should do. But it's especially for those who can't defend themselves, as you'll see, sojourners, widows, and orphans. Uh, They didn't have as much power in the world and don't to be able to defend themselves, whereas rich people could buy witnesses to say what they wanted to get out of a particular case, but sojourners, widows, orphans didn't have the funds and oftentimes the friends to pull off something like that. So this law in particular is focused on protecting the weak in society. And the big idea here I think, if I could put it in two sentences, is this. If you're guilty, you're guilty. If you're not guilty, you're not guilty. That's the principle. And you'll see that as we get into this text. We're going to start in verse 16, 24, 16. Before we do, I'm going to pray for us and we'll continue on. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for this time and your word in which you reveal yourself and instruct us in how to live in your world in a way that honors you and your name. And we pray that you would indeed help us, that you would bless our fellowship, our discussion, our study, that we'd be a help to one another, that you would edify us, that you would make us more holy by this time we have together in discipleship training. Amen. All right, Deuteronomy 24, 16 Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Each shall be put to death for his own sin. You see in this text, everyone dies for his own sin. Nobody should die for somebody else's sin in the court of law. But I think this also raises a, a question from something we heard from Moses back in Deuteronomy 5, 9, where he says, on behalf of the Lord, I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. So how does that passage harmonize with this one? How can you say, fathers shall not be put to death for their sons and then have the iniquity of the fathers visit on the children to the third or fourth generation.
Well, this terminology here, visiting the iniquity, I want to start with that word iniquity. Is it the same thing as sin or is it different? Iniquity is a little different word. You remember we talking about sin. What it is is it's you're, you're sinning against God as the standard of everything. You're not just missing the mark, but you're missing representing God as he truly is. This word iniquity is a word that's very much synonymous with the word guilt. It has to do with whether you're guilty or not. So it's not just that you've missed the standard, but you're also guilty of something. It's... Uh, obviously, a, a legal word. Guilt is, and it's a term dealing with a legal ruling, not a feeling here. So it doesn't matter if somebody feels guilty or not. You just are. I mean, you can tell the judge all day, but I don't feel guilty. You know, I don't feel condemned. Well, it doesn't matter. Uh, the, the law books say that you are guilty, and this is what we're to do with you. And so with this, you know, Deuteronomy 5, 9, the visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, it's talking about that iniquity is the guilt, the guilty verdict against the fathers. And so a father can have a guilty verdict, which under the Mosaic Covenant could have uh, certain results under the curse, like there being a famine in the land. So the father's sin, part of the curse was there'd be a famine in the land, which would have consequences for future generations. And that's the idea there. If the father is guilty of a particular sin, it can have consequences that will affect future generations. But the father can't be put to death for the sins of his son, and it works the other way as well. A son can't be put to death for the sins of his father because his father is the one who's guilty for his sins even though a son may endure some of the consequences of it, but then those children afterwards will be guilty for their own sin that they commit. They can't say, well, it's, you know, it's my father's fault. So the guilt of the father doesn't transfer, though the consequences can go on. But then after that, the children can also commit their own sins of which they alone will be guilty so God, God never punishes the innocent. Innocent people are never punished by God. And so you can think about this one. Israel, they later up end up in exile, and they have their, this little proverb about how it was, you know, their fathers who ate these sour grapes, but it was their teeth that were uh, set on edge by it. You know, saying, well, that's kind of right, but it, it's not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. <laughs> it's that, yes, there, there is some bitterness in your life because of what they did, but you're not guilty for their sins. You're guilty for your own sins, and you also deserve to be in exile, even though it's a consequence of what they did. They couldn't just look back and say, well, it's because of our parents that we're going into exile because we're totally innocent. We have never sinned against you. Well, they brought their own sin into the mix, even though they endured the consequences of their parents' mistakes. All of this can be summed up in my simple two sentences I gave you. If you're guilty, you're guilty. If you're not guilty, you're not guilty. That's how justice works. 
This next section we're going to look at is verses 17 to 22. And I wrote a subtitle for myself on this. It's Proactive Justice. That's what you need to see. Proactive Justice in Remembrance of What You Were. Proactive Justice in Remembrance of What You Were. And think about that as I read 17 to 22 here. You shall not pervert the justice due a sojourner or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that Yahweh your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten the sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that Yahweh your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs after you finish. It shall be for the sojourner, for the orphan, and for the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it after you finish. It shall be for the sojourner, for the orphan, and for the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. You see here with this idea of not bearing false witness that they were not to pervert justice that was due to a, the weak in society, a sojourner, an orphan, widows. Because again, if guilty, you're guilty. If you're not guilty, you're not guilty. If these people aren't guilty, they don't need to be punished for anything, but you also don't want them to end up in a situation where they might be guilty. It's like, well, what is it that motivates showing, wanting to show this kind of justice in a society? Well, God says, remember that you were a slave. Remember that you were the weakest in society. Well, it's like, well, why do you, why would, why would you treat the weakest in society this way? Because that's who you used to be, but God has redeemed you. And Israel's justice was to point to God's grace in that way, that God in his grace redeems and he protects the weak. Now, I know you've heard that word, social justice. Maybe it's a potty word in your mind. Maybe you can still work with the term and think it can be redeemed. It's kind of a semantic game to kind of talk about it, but... Uh, you know, social justice versus biblical justice, which justice, as we know, it's, it's only good if it points to the right theology. It's only actually justice if it's the justice that, that God defines and teaches to us. You know, call it what you will. But when we think about modern social justice movements, uh, they're very much focused on the horizontal and human relationships and almost exclusively only the point of history in which they live. But they overlook that vertical relationship that we have to the God who defines how we think about justice and defines how we're to live it out and also the why behind it. They often overlook the theology that's to be lived out and taught through how we seek to establish justice in a society. And our options aren't either, you know, justice or theology. 
but we're to uphold a biblical concept of justice in order to demonstrate that our God by nature is a redeemer. So how do we have a, a justice system and promote a justice which demonstrates that God is a redeemer? He's redemptive by nature. Well, as you think about this topic, I'm sure James 127 has crossed your mind. It says, pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So you could take just the horizontal part, you know, you're supposed to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and forget the vertical part that it's before God our Father and you're not to be unstained by the world in the doing of that. We're to have devotion to God and before God is how we think about it. So I'm taking that idea of devotion to God from the word religion. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what that word means there. Religion is you know, devotion to God or you know, binding yourself to him, to live before him. And we're instructed here to, to care about people who have no voice. But why, why do you care about people who have no voice? Because that's who you were at one time. You're somebody who was weak and you had no voice. But Jesus came and redeemed you and was a voice on your behalf for the sake of your soul. Justice, as we see here, is maybe a little bit different than you might think of it initially and in that it's proactive rather than reactive. A lot of times we think justice, it's something bad happens and then you hear the police sirens in response to what is happening. It's reactive. But here you see in this establishing the nature of justice as Moses is preaching worldview to the, the Israelites here. He's explaining that justice is proactive, which I think we see with these concepts like when you harvest your own field. Now you think about it. When you go and you harvest your own field, have you committed an injustice? It's like that guy's harvesting his field. You know, somebody call the police. <laughs> well, no, you haven't done anything wrong in harvesting your field. You haven't done anything that requires a legal reaction. But when you're thinking about justice amidst harvesting your field, you're thinking, well, how do I do something that's proactive for people who could be treated unjustly, like sojourners who might walk through this field? What about widows who might glean from this field? What about orphans who might walk through this field? Am I going to go back and make sure I get every last grain for me? <laughs> Or am I going to do something proactive so that there's something there for them? There's something there for the weak. There's something there for you know, those who don't have a field like this. And that I can demonstrate something of the redemptive nature of God by leaving some grain in the field, some grapes in the vineyard, some olives on the olive tree. Justice is proactive in preventing injustice from ever occurring so that there wouldn't have to be a reaction to theft or assault 
You know, something is done to seek to prevent those things. You could think of it like this, that uh, justice comes with a preventative maintenance plan, kind of like you do with your appliances in your home. There's uh, things that you do so that they don't prematurely break down. And you do that in we are to do that in society. We're to have a preventative maintenance plan so things don't break down. This sort of action that we see of you know, le leaving produce to be gleaned promotes justice. It's a way that you're, you can uphold the weak. It's a way to be a voice for those who have no voice and prevent injustice from happening. In this way, they also upheld justice and you know, feeding widows and orphans before they ever were hungry. You know, they took care of them before they were starved. They were thinking ahead and being proactive. Justice isn't merely something that's reactionary, but you see what's being taught here is it's, it's a state for things to always exist in. And things should always be like this. So plan for living in such a way that justice is always upheld. When you look at verse, well, that's verse 1 of chapter 25. We're going to pick up on this logic of the fathers not being put to death for their sons. I'm going to read those three verses there. This is Deuteronomy 25, 1 to 3. If there is a dispute between men and they go to court to judgment and the judges judge their case and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be struck, the judge shall then make him lie down and be struck in the presence with the number of stripes according to his guilt. He may strike him 40 times, but no more, lest he strike him with many more stripes than these and your brother be dishonored in your eyes. I thought of this when there was a fellow down in SoCal that he drove his car real fast down the five and because he wanted to be in a high-speed police chase. And then when he was on the news and the reporter asked him, why did you do it? He said, I just wanted to see my tax dollars at work. I said, well, what, and I just thought, what if your tax dollars just bought a whip? <laughs> and they said, you know what, you're done with your interview. You need to come over here. <laughs> I think he probably wouldn't be driving his car real fast anymore. But, uh, think of that what you will. That's what I thought about when that happened. <laughs> you hear this uh, statement here of justify the righteous. This is what judges are to do. Justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. But it, that, those should never be mixed. They should never flip around the other way. And so what if you're wicked? Well, verse 2 tells us you must be punished. If you're wicked, you must be punished. There's, there's not a get out of jail free sort of thing. Justice has to be carried out for the sake of everybody. But the punishment must fit the crime and not be overdone. And so there is a restriction on this punishment that they would be struck 40 times but not more which 
you know, later in the Bible and the Jews, when they practiced this, they said, you, Lord, we will do only 39 to make sure that we never break, you know, just in case we miscounted by one. <laughs> but you hear about that in 2 Corinthians 11 when Paul talks about how he was whipped 40 times minus one, which was the maximum penalty then. Well, when we think about this concept in which, you know, God was teaching Israel how to not bear false witness and to be proactive in justice, we know it has much wider implications in how we speak because positively it's just dealing with you speaking the truth. And this made me think of Ephesians 4, 20 to 25. Ephesians 4.20 to 25 reads this, But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you heard him and were taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, to lay aside in reference to your former conduct the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. See, you think about that, it's seeing you within a, a community and saying that truth is important there. You know, don't bear false witness in there. It's not false witness there because it's not a, a legal setting, but... Uh, you're laying aside falsehood. You're speaking the truth to one another because that, that affects everybody else. You know, your truthfulness within the church affects others. But it also affects yourself. You know, what, what happens to your own soul when you don't speak the truth? It gets corrupted. Yeah, that's exactly what the text is saying. You know, your former self, you know, the old man was being corrupted. But it was with you know, the lust of the flesh, which is just the word desires. You know, we all have, you know, lust. Some people are like, oh, I don't, I don't have lust. That's just like for really nasty people. But you do have desires. <laughs> and that's the word there. Like your own desires can be corrupting to you, but there's something, you know, corrupt in you that motivates the falsehood. Uh, and just think about it this way. What, what are you trying to gain by taking away from the whole truth? Or what are you trying to gain by adding to the truth? What are you trying to gain by avoiding the truth? What do you think? <laughs> what might happen to someone else if you don't speak the truth? This is kind of along Andrew's point from the very beginning. You know, there's things that can happen to other people. Maybe we can expand on that a little bit. You know, if we don't speak the truth, it can be corrupting to us. But if we don't speak the truth or we speak a lie, that can also affect someone else in certain ways. Uh, how, how can our not speaking the truth affect other people? 
yeah, they could get punished, unjustly punished. Yeah, little kids try to do that. What was that? Yeah, you're, you're sinning against somebody else. Uh, the, you know, the innocent or the weak, they might lack somebody to stand up for them. Yeah, that'd be an example. Andrew. Yeah, so here's another side of it. It's a, a guilty person could get away with something and start thinking, I can keep getting away with this. There's not going to be any punishment for me. Nobody's going to expose what I've done. Maybe they actually even approve of it. I don't know. What if, what if you don't confront a sin that somebody commits against you? I know there's, there's times to overlook a sin, but there's also times in which uh, it, it must be addressed. But what if, you don't, what if you don't do it when you should? What if you don't confront somebody's sin when you should? Yeah, you don't sin in a vacuum, that's for sure. Yeah. You're like you're, you see, you're passively condoning the sin because you're you're agreeing with them to, but you're also are not going about the process in which you could win your brother or help your brother. So how do you stand up for righteousness in this case? Well, as you know, as mentioned, you, you have to go and confront them. Go ahead. Right. Yeah, you're not loving them if you're not uh, confronting it. But you also communicate something if, if you don't address it, in which it's, again, it, you're condoning, approving, you know, it, it's okay or you're part of it. You think about this, what about within a, a marriage? What if there's a struggle in a marriage that just goes undiscussed and undealt with? What if they never discuss the, the truth about a, a struggle that's happening within that relationship? Well, you have the, the danger of, you know, one of the partners could you know, look for things that they should find in that marriage relationship somewhere else. Uh, they look for affirmation somewhere else or encouragement in uh, other relationships, other, other things in life. You see, not, not speaking the truth can be costly on a number of levels, whether it be a, a marriage or within, you know, the congregation or within society at large you know uh, other results of not speaking the truth can be bitterness because you never you know communicate with somebody else that well you were bothered by something that they were doing 
sometimes you talk to them and sometimes they're like, they're really genuinely doing something that should bother people. And sometimes they're not. It's just a misunderstanding. Oh, I didn't, I was thinking about that wrong. I shouldn't have been bitter about this. My perception was wrong, but it's been corrected because it's been discussed, you know, the truth of the struggle within. Also, another result of not speaking the truth could be regret. Man, I wish I wish that I had said this then because I should have. Could be anger, could be resentment, could be unforgiveness because things are left undealt with, unresolved. And certainly there's much to be gained in the human relationship and seeking to engage speaking the truth to one another. But what's ultimately at stake when we twist or conceal the truth? What's ultimately at stake when we twist or conceal the truth? Is it just healthy relationships? Yeah. Yeah, ultimately what's at at stake is the how the character of God is represented through his image bearers. Everywhere we go, we bear the name of Jesus and we're not to bear it in vain. We're not to treat it like it's an empty thing and it's just not worth considering in this circumstance. Which as we have talked about with the commandments, commandment number three, You shall not take the Lord's name in vain, connects over to six, seven, eight, and nine as a block, and it's explaining the horizontal relationship and how you carry out that command of not taking the Lord's name in vain. And we're on number nine. One of the ways you do that is by not bearing false witness, by telling the truth. But what about when you're Afraid to tell the truth. Now, what, what is it in a person that makes them afraid to tell the whole truth? Yeah, maybe they don't want to get punished. Have you ever had to correct somebody who's scary? Or you think, this might not go well. They might be cranky with me. They might be mean to me for more than a, a day. <laughs> That's uh, you see, this is starting to intersect with you know fear of man. You know, it's like, do I love them and confront them and, and endure through this, or uh, or I could be a coward and do nothing. You know, what are what are reasons that we withhold the truth? You know, one could, could be punishment, could be fear for of, of the response. Any other things you can think of and why we would be afraid to tell the truth? Jim. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's a... Well, you brought up that, that concept, you know, loving yourself, which is like there's a certain reputation you want. There's this certain uh, life you want of, you know, comfort without confrontation. But <laughs> we can... And we'll think it's peace, but, you know, what was brought up while y'all were talking out there, you know, it's peace faking, not peace making. Because it's not really, you're actually not at peace with one another. You're just, you know, agreeing to not deal with it. But, you're, you know, you could look at it, well, I just don't like problems. Well, it's not problems you don't, it's solutions that you don't like. <laughs> you're, you're fine with keeping the problem around, but the problem only gets worse. You know, it's just like you leave that bag of oranges in the pantry for a really long time. You know, they don't get better over time. <laughs> Did that one time. It was weird because I went to grab them. My, my hand went right through them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you think about where we, we are a building, you know, we're living stones that are supposed to be building up one another, and we can s speak things that are proactively building up one another, or we can speak things that tear down or not do anything, which I guess you could think of on a, on a structure as rotting, <laughs> neglect, you know, it's, it's not a good thing when it's left undealt with. But you, you recognize to, you know, even when it comes to engaging and carrying something on your home, uh, it's going to cost you something. And it will cost you more than you think it's going to cost you and take more time than you think it's going to take every time. <laughs> it's like that in relationships too. You're seeking to be part of building up one another, seeking to preserve unity. And why, why, well, here, here's the, the biblical language, strive for unity. And it doesn't say, you know, uh, ease yourself into unity, you know, relax into unity. <laughs> it, it, it feels like striving. It's something that you have to work at. It's something that's costly. And, and uh, it'll take more time than you think, but there's much to be uh, learned through it as well for yourself and for others.
Yeah. So anything about peace within the body. So what's from Romans 16, you have somebody who's stirring up dissension uh, in the church and you're seeing, well, how do you carry out uh, how God wants to foster peace within his community? Well, you, you can talk to that guy. This is, you know, this would tie also into, you know, within Titus with the divisive man. You know, you warn him once, you want peace with him. You warn them once, and the second time you, ha- you have nothing to do with them. But it's like, well, why is that? Well, you're, you're trying to establish peace with the guy, but if he doesn't want it, he's got to go because he's a, a disturbance to the peace. And so that's how it's maintained is by removing the disturbance. Perhaps you think about it like uh, termites eating your house. It's like, well, we can be at peace or you can move. <laughs> In that case, they got to go. That's a little different with the the guy. (laughs) Right. Exactly. You're you're having somebody who's rejecting correction, perhaps. they, They could be a true believer. They're just really stubborn, and they got their heels dug in on this thing. Or they're a, a false brother, and they need to be taken out of the church, you know, so that you know that little bit of leaven doesn't grow, and other people take part of you know, the the divisiveness, the false teaching, the anger, the discontentment, the grumbling, and stuff that can go along with that sort of person. But you know, if you have somebody like that in your midst, and they're removed, it feels it feels very different. <laughs> it's like Oh, what is this? This is peace because of the removal of the disruption to it. It's, you know, it's like that. That's a little bit more of the, you know, the punitive side of it. You know, uh, a peace officer, what you think of, deals with that. Uh, if there's been a disturbance to the peace and the police come and deal with it, there's some people you just, you can talk to them, but that's not going to be enough. They need to be removed from the home or the situation or, you know, where, wherever they're at. Another concept I want to talk about within, uh, back here in Deuteronomy 24, is this justifying the righteous and condemning the wicked. Because you need to think about this reality and that Christ died in our place. Like he died as if he were the wicked, so we could be treated as if we were the righteous one that he is. But how can he do that? If justice works like this, where you you only justify the righteous and you condemn the wicked, but here's the problem. We are the wicked. We've done wicked things. Uh, We we have uh, spoken falsehood. We have withheld the truth. And those things are wicked. They're not like slightly wicked sort of things or, you know, because you told a white lie, they're actually like clean ones that are okay. But they're in the category of wicked and we have done things like that. Everybody in this room. So how can God declare us to be righteous when we've done wicked things? How can he do that? How can God say that we're righteous when we've lied, we've twisted the truth, we've withheld the truth? He died for our sins, so the penalty 
goes away. So he's just in taking care of that penalty. But even though he's paid that penalty, like you can have a, a criminal, you know, he pays his fine. Does that all of a sudden make him a righteous guy? Yeah, yeah you need to repent. He, need, he needs to be different, but he needs a new status. He needs something different on the record books, which you go for it. <laughs> Yeah, so you hear that, that term that was used there, imputed righteousness. Maybe it's something you do on your bank account or an Excel spreadsheet. Most people just never use the word imputed. <laughs> but it, it's, a, it's an accounting term. You know, you impute funds from one account to another. So with Christ's righteousness, when it's imputed to us, so you see that it's not our righteousness, it's his, but he imputes it to our account but what happens when we talk about this this is you know second corinthians 5 21 says he made him to be sin who knew no sin so you think you know your your account only has sin on it but it gets put on Christ's account and it says this happens so that we might become the righteousness of god it's like well where did that come from uh, he wasn't saying oh so he wasn't saying so that you could go and try to earn it for yourself well, the righteousness is in Christ. It was so that your account could go to him and his account could go to you and God could truly see you as having the status of righteousness. There's been two major views on this throughout history. One is the Protestant view. One is the Roman Catholic view. Now, the Protestant view would say justification is a declaration of righteousness. So you're being declared that. It's being said, this is your status and it's a gift to you. The Roman Catholic Church would say, well, justification is an infusion of righteousness. It's like what Christ does is he has this syringe of righteousness and he gives you just enough to get you going, but you have to go through this whole process to get to the final completion of it, but it's ultimately up to you. He just starts a process. So there's been a debate throughout history. You know, is this righteousness a declared righteousness or is it something that you're made righteous? It's actually something that's inherent to you rather than outside of you. So are we declared righteous because Christ has given us the gift of his righteous life or does scripture teach that we're infused with the righteousness to get us started on earning it for ourselves by law-keeping? The first one, <laughs> you think about this is from Philippians 3, 9, where Paul says you know, he, he wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law. So he's recognized righteousness isn't in me and it's not by keeping the law. Righteousness isn't in me or in the law or in law keeping. He says, but that which is through faith in Christ so, so how does somebody get this righteous status? Well, it's through faith in Christ. It's through trust in Christ. And it's like, well, what are we like trusting in exactly? Well, we're trusting that he is our righteousness, that he has imputed that to us. Which he 
going on here. He says that, that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith. So where does the righteousness come from? He doesn't say it comes from you or it comes from trying harder or it comes from uh, keeping the rules or it comes from uh, being at church, getting baptized, Bible reading plan, praying some amount. And he says, no, it, it's from God. Righteous, only God is righteous. And if you, if you want righteousness, you have to get it from him. Uh, you, you'll never be the source of it. It has to come from him and it's upon faith, which well, that's a word we don't want to take for granted and just use it because we know it's a, a, a Bible word. We want to understand it. Which I think perhaps that synonym uh, trust helps us. You know, we're trusting something. You know, we're believing something uh, about Christ and about God. You know, righteousness is from God. It's in Christ. So righteousness, you can see how Paul is using the word. He's using it. It's, it's a legal declaration. It's not a transformative process. It's something that's from God that he declares about you. It's not some process where he changes you just a little bit so you can change yourself the rest of the way. Which brings us back in here to Deuteronomy 25.1. says, if, if there's a dispute between men and they go to court for judgment and the judges judge their case and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Well, if a judge declares someone justified or condemned in a case, does that transform their nature all of a sudden? Like, well, the, you know, the judge said that I'm, I'm righteous. Therefore, I'm a completely new man. <laughs> Well, no, it's just, it's just a legal declaration. It doesn't change uh, your nature. Judges don't make somebody righteous. I don't know if that's proper grammar or that's from growing up in the Texas panhandle, but that's how I wrote it. <laughs> Judges don't make somebody righteous. That's pretty good, right? All right. So they, they declare if their status is righteous or not. And think about this, listen to this as we continue this discussion. This is from Galatians 3, 21 to 26. Galatians 3, 21. Uh, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So did God ever give us a law that would give us life? No, it's, you know, if it, if it were that way, then yes, you would be right. Righteousness would be from keeping the law. But he says, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So he's saying, instead what the law does, it's not a means of righteousness, but it, instead it, it's an instructor that prosecutes you. It teaches you that you're not righteous and that you need to go to God for that righteousness. The text goes on, Galatians 3, but before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, being shut up for the coming faith to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor unto Christ so that we, we may be justified by faith. So he said, this is the idea. He said, you grew up in Moses' home, but Moses was always teaching you to move out. And to go to Jesus. You can't live here 
forever. I don't have a basement. I'm not buying you Cheetos or games for your X machine. You got to move out. X machine is what old people call Xbox, by the way, in case you're wondering. <laughs> so the law has become our tutor unto Christ to teach you to go to him. It doesn't say righteousness is here. It says, no, righteousness is, is there. Go to him. But it, we're justified. We're made right with God by trusting that that's true. We're made right with God by trusting in Christ, that he's the one who fulfills the law in our place. It says, but now faith has come and we're no longer under a tutor for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So righteousness doesn't come by a process of law keeping. The law teaches us that instead we, we are unrighteous sinners who need to trust that Jesus is the righteousness that we need. And we don't, you could think of it this way, we don't, we don't become sons by trying to look like a member of the family. You know, I, I could go over to, to Jim's house and try to look and sound Italian, but it won't make me an S-way. This is, but what, you know, how that would work, I'd have to be legally adopted. And I'm a little old for that, but wouldn't be the worst thing that happened to me. <laughs> that we don't become sons by trying to look like a member of the family. So you think of that with law keeping. You know, you don't become a child of God by trying to look like one. Like, instead, you have to be legally adopted into his family. But then when you're adopted and he becomes your father, he's going to be concerned about you upholding the good family name. You know, he's going to discipline you. He's going to direct you into looking like the member of the family that he has made you to be. And you think about these realities of being declared righteous. If we're declared righteous, that means you never have to earn it. And you'll never be, you're, n you're not more righteous on your best days and you're not less righteous on your worst days. You're just righteous and your righteousness is Christ. It's never based on you. Which I'm kind of giving you a hint to the question that I'm gonna ask you here. Uh, how has declared righteousness a comfort to your soul? Yeah, you're, you're in Christ for the rest of your life and, and it's not like you're more in sometimes or less in other times or he kicks you out sometimes and sometimes you can come back but sometimes you don't know if he's gonna take you back. Andrew. Yeah. Yeah, eternal security. Yeah, it's gonna, it ties into that. Because if you're declared righteous, you can't undo that status unless you're stronger than God. And you can rewrite his record books for him. And so your, your salvation is secure in him. We're gonna get to a passage about that in John chapter 10. But first, Romans 8. Romans 8 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. So this is the, that idea, you know, if you're guilty, you're guilty. If you're not guilty, you're not guilty. And you say, well, you know, I, I feel condemned and I feel like God couldn't love me. And he says, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, 
weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, so think about how this is a, a comfort to your soul in the days that you feel guilty. Maybe you are guilty for something and you should feel bad about it. But there, it doesn't change your status with God. It doesn't, he doesn't say, can't call you a saint anymore. I'm only going to call you a sinner. Got to change all of those epistles. Shouldn't have been to the saints at such and such. It should have just been to the sinners. And if there's ever a church to do that too, it was the Corinthians. But he didn't say that. He even called those people saints. So no condemnation means no condemnation. If God sees you as not guilty, then you're not guilty. Though you may have some things that, uh, sins you've committed, things that are still being sanctified in your life. And if you're alive right now and breathing, that is true of you. And it will be until the Lord comes or you're resurrected with a new body like his. You know, just thinking about this, like you don't, you don't think, ah, things kind of feel off. Like I don't feel righteous. I'm going to read more of the Bible tomorrow. I'm going to do better. And then that'll uh, earn me feeling like I'm righteous before God. It's like, well, that's not how that works. You don't earn that with him. But instead, it's something that you get to do. You, you want to do. You know, why is it that you want to be disciplined in reading scripture? It's not so you can earn something, it's so you can enjoy something. And it's not because you're trying to like, you know, God, I want to get on your payroll. I want some wages here. I'm going to do some work for you. So he said, he said you remember when Jesus said, it is finished? <laughs> he didn't mean like 30%. He, he meant all of it. And as... Uh, was brought up a little bit earlier, this idea of, you know, our salvation. Can it be lost? Can you do something so bad or just be so ornery for so long that God says, you know what, I've had enough of this. I'm taking your, your salvation away. Well, could the apostle Peter remove himself from God's saving hand by denying Christ three times? You think like some, something like that might be able to do it. Could Peter's three denials of Christ take away his salvation. Well, this is what his Christ said to him. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish ever and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Uh, Peter's life is a demonstration of this truth. It can't happen. Uh, if you're in the Father's hand, you're in Jesus' hand, nobody can snatch you out, not even you. Again, you see this logic lived out in all of these things here. You know, if you're guilty, you're guilty. If you're not guilty, you're not guilty. And you can't switch that around because of Jesus' saving of Peter, he couldn't undo his declaration of righteousness over that man's life. I think you see here as we come to a close that this 
the Bible's concept of declared righteousness is it's an anchor for your soul when you're battling to overcome sin. Those stubborn, besetting sins that maybe you'll struggle with your whole life, but they don't have to be as dominating. And you see that it never changes your status with God ever. And that's part of what you know, gets you out of the funk when it happens. You're like, oh man, back to this. You know, I, this has been an issue for 20 years, something like that. And you see, but I haven't lost my salvation. I haven't lost my standing with God because that's all based on Christ. But that's the thing that is the balm for the soul that begins to heal it so that you can move on and that you're reminded uh, he's not only broken the penalty of sin, he's broken the power of it. Like you don't have to keep going back to it. And one day he's going to deliver you from the presence of it. Uh, you won't have to deal with it forever. You're actually going to get what you want. <laughs> you want that, that stubborn struggle with sin to go away? It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. And you're gonna make some progress in it in this life. And the Lord's gonna be faithful to shepherd you through it. You might think of 1 John 1, 9 here. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God's forgiveness, it doesn't just stop at that, okay, I, I declare you righteous, but I'm not gonna help clean any of this stuff out. You deal with that. But he says, no, he, he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you think, well, I also want some help in dealing with this thing. Well, he has that for you also. It's, again, he cancels not only the penalty of our sin, but he also breaks the power of it. But the wrestling with that involves needing each other. It involves the community he's given us where we are you know, living stones of this building that's building up one another, that we're striving to do these things together, which, you know, one element of that, maybe somebody here today wants to get some help from you uh, with some sin that they've been struggling with, and, you're, and you should not be shocked and think, oh, no, this person sinned. Like, how, how could they? <laughs> Don't be surprised that sinners sin. It's what happens, but recognize, you know, they need help. I've been in this place before. And, you know, think Galatians 6. You know, you see your brother struggling with something. Perhaps you can come alongside them, help them to, to strengthen themselves through this struggle. But you've got to watch out for yourself lest you fall into it as well. When it comes to God's faithfulness and righteousness to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness... The great encouragement to us is that God can do this, but he also must do this because it's who he is. He, he can't do different than this. God can and must do this because of who he is and what he has done for you in Christ. And he'll be faithful to do it and we'll give him the praise. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord Jesus, we thank you for your righteousness. Pray that thinking upon it would Help us be tempted towards sin less and brought more to be motivated to seek you, to love you, to enjoy you because we continue to taste and to see that you are good. 
We pray that you would continue to move us in that direction, that you would bring us closer to yourself, that you would use our fellowship this morning unto that end so that you would be glorified and we would enjoy the righteous status that you've given us, but we would enjoy it by living it out by the new powers that you have given us, the new family that you have given us. You are kind, you are gracious, and we can't thank you enough for your grace toward us and this gift of righteousness which is found in you alone. Amen.